their ever-present pursuit of entertainment, education, and some adjective to be named later, the Homestar Army proudly presents Trek West 5, a conglomerate podcast of science fiction, politics, humor, and pretty much whatever else they want to talk about. Your hosts for Trek West 5 are Joey and Peter. Hey everybody, this is Joey. Uh, Pete and I did not record a podcast this week because I had an opportunity once again to attend the Life, the Universe, and Everything Science Fiction and Fantasy Publishing Symposium. Since we were not able to record a podcast, I, I took my iPhone with me and I was able to grab just a, a few of the authors that and, and other individuals that I really enjoyed talking to and, and hearing from and uh, just asked them a, a few questions that I had come up with and recorded their responses. We're going to stitch them together here as best we can. I'll, I'll apologize in advance for the sound quality, both me right now and within the uh, the framework of the recordings that I made. I uh, just didn't have a regular podcasting recording studio available to us for, for this session. Hope you guys enjoy it. We are here with Darren Hansen. Darren is the author of the Dunleth Hill Writer's Guide from dunlethill.com and a regular contributor to the Utah Children's Writer's Blog. An MIT-trained anthropologist, engineer, and historian, he has worked on nuclear weapons, created fractal models of fungal growth, and tried assorted other schemes for world domination. Fortunately for all concerned, he discovered that writing is a socially acceptable outlet for his congenital megalomania. Darren, thank you for joining us. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good evil laugh you got there. Sorry. So, uh, I, I, I try to use it for good. <laughs> we'll use it for awesome. That's, that's, <laughs> our, that's our policy on the podcast here. So, um, I, just, I had some questions, and since we're here at uh, LTUE, I wanted to grab a couple, of, a couple of people that I admire and people that I've enjoyed well, hearing you. talk. Um, I have purchased now three of your books, so I haven't, I've only read one of them. I haven't read the other two. I just bought them last night at your recommendation. So um, just wanted to, to start off a little bit trying to understand your creative process. Do you have a particular place you go to write? Do you have a time of day where you find you're more productive? Is there a music or a other kind of environment settings that, that help you as you're trying to write? Well, the essence, I, I think everyone, of course, has their own individual process, but the essence of what we're looking for when we ask these questions is what can help us put aside the distractions and focus? Sure. I happen to be fortunate in that I have an entire uh, room. We call it variously the cave or the cave of despair. <laughs> because I work at home, I have the, a room set aside for that, which I also use for writing. Okay. The room is large enough that I've tried to separate my day job workspace from my writing. It's a little tricky when you're dealing with one computer and <laughs> move to the other side of the table. But there's value in creating a mental separation. Commuting is something that I never enjoyed, <laughs> but I made the best of it. I did, though, like the way in which it physically took me out of the sphere of work and into a different sphere. Okay. I think people who like to, to work with music, for example, that serves to mask out other noises. People who enjoy working in coffee shops, for example, as another example, that the coffee shop is a, a, an environment full of white noise, yes, yeah. the chatter in the background, which is another way to actually, uh, th there's some fascinating neuroscience behind it about uh, the parts of your brain that pay attention to things like that, and if they're busy paying attention to the white noise, then 
they're quiet long enough for the creative part of your mind to speak okay. to you. So there's, there's virtue in all of these exercises. I grew up in a large family and developed an ability to concentrate. And so I found that I don't have a particular time or place that I've set aside as the one time to write. There's value in doing so because it helps you focus on the writing. On the other hand, there's a danger in creating a kind of crutch where you feel mm. you can't write if you're not in that situation. That's a good point. So the, the meta goal is to find way, times and ways to write. Now, another, another nuance that I haven't heard people mention when they're talking about how and where they write is a notion of the kind of writing you're doing. Okay. Editing, for example, at least to me, feels different than sure, drafting. Yeah. Different part of the brain, right? Yeah. So, well, the Buddhists have a practice they call mindfulness. I'm going to, in suggesting that writers be mindful, I'm doing short shrift to a, an age-old and, <laughs> and complex practice. But it's, at, a, at a crude level, it's simply paying attention to what you're doing. So the, my, my best advice is pay attention to what you're doing. You try writing, you see what works. More important is the discipline of continuing to write. Sure. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your intended audience for your books. In Babylon 5... <laughs> I should tell you, since you, since you brought it up, let me interrupt you really briefly to tell you, this is Trek West 5. It's a podcast that was started with discussions of Star Trek The Next Generation, The West Wing, and Babylon 5. So oh, you're, most, you're speaking right to our excellent. base. <laughs> then, then I can then I don't have to explain at great length about the, uh, the uh, conversation between Emperor Terhan and Captain Sheridan. Sure. Where, after the Emperor asks about regrets, he says, and I'm, while I have it on my website, I'm going to paraphrase <laughs> it badly. He says, the past haunts us, the future terrifies us, and we're all caught in the present in that terrible in between. Yeah, it's pretty close. I don't know it exactly, yeah, either, but you I, got the I sense. Know. <laughs> That's the sense of it. I've long thought I was wanted to write for young adults because developmentally, that's the terrible between. Okay. That sits right in childhood and adulthood. That what you are in those phases is relatively clear, but in that middle. <laughs> <laughs> where you're not, not either. There's you're a lot some, of flux. There's a between. But more broadly, I think many of us find ourselves in the between, either the existential one that Turhan was talking about or, or a more concrete one that uh, we're between jobs, we're between phases of life. So I think, I think my mission is to write thoughtful books for people navigating the great between. That's great. I love that. And I, I love that you're citing Babylon 5, which is very, very dear to my heart. It's, uh, Straczynski is right up there on my list. And that's why Sheldon Cooper has to be on top of my enemy list. <laughs> so uh, if you could change any one thing about any of your books that are published, do you have something in mind, and what would it be? 
right now, the, the only things that are available are my writing guides. And because they're available to e as e-books, they're easy to change. <laughs> and so I'm going to answer in terms of the writing process. Okay. The thing that I would change, and actually this speaks to the larger goal of speaking to the terrible in between, the thing I would change about my writing journey is the same thing I would want to change about my teenage self, which is to try, though I know it's impossible, to convince my earlier self not to be impatient. <laughs> okay. Many things in life are speeding up. We we're raising an entire generation where if uh, the screen doesn't refresh within a few seconds of clicking, they get bored and go someplace else. <laughs> That's a true point. At a very high level, uh, that means that many of us have forgotten how to be bored. We have bought so, we've, we've wholesale bought into the promise made by largely cell phone carriers, but also vendors of other convenience devices, tablets and whatnot, that you never have to be bored again. You're in a line, hey, without the phone, the tablet, and you're throwing birds at pigs. What could be more exciting? <laughs> it is not fun to be bored, and I'm not certainly not going to stand up and say, hey, let's just all go stare at stare a corner. But there, is, there are th voices that can only be heard when we're still and silent. I think one of those is the voice of the muse. Okay. If you're trying to capture something that is your own expression, as opposed to repackaging some cool stuff you've heard, which, by the way, I'm not saying is categorically bad. Sure. There's an yeah. awful lot of good work that's been done under, the, under fan fiction and, well, good heavens, what, what do you call remakes of Pride and Prejudice? Is that fan fiction? It's a mashup. Mashups. Yep. It's not that that's bad, but if you're, if you're trying to find what you have to add to the conversation, you're not going to find it in all of every, in everyone else's stuff. You're going to find it in that stillness. That stillness takes time. One of the problems with being in the 10 to 20 range is that you start looking at things, at all of the limitations you've got, wishing that you could get ahead of the game. Yeah, sure. Go do the fun stuff. Similarly, when you're writing, it's really easy to look at the latest bestseller or an author friend who, who's getting a nationwide tour complete with advertising <laughs> and think, why am I not there? What have I failed to do? It's hard, it's easy to say, take a breath, relax and and keep the faith boy it's hard to do that in practice <laughs> and so I don't really imagine that I could go back and change it but that is the thing that I would change that's good you know you mentioned that I, I have to say for myself it's actually uh, probably one of the things that's held me back in my own writing is 
I have never learned how to be bored. As, as a young kid, I got where I found a way to keep myself busy, a way to keep my mind going, because I, I, would, I hated those mental lulls. And uh, maybe, maybe it is something I need to take a look at, that you know, I'm, I'm not allowing that quiet moment for that inspiration to come in. So. Well, and, and I think it's a subtle thing here, because it's not just about sitting sure. and not thinking about anything. I, my strategy for getting through school, I'm, I'm talking grade school, middle school, was to find a way to make the assignment interesting to me. <laughs> I think it was sixth grade. We had a list of spelling words, and uh, one week the teacher announced that we should use those words to write a story. So, being clever and a bit of a smart aleck, I took those 20 words and wrote a 27-word story. <laughs> I might have been able to get it down to, say, 25. I mean, sure. you, you had to have a few conjunctions. Yeah. Uh, just couldn't if they were all nouns, you had to have thrown a verb. <laughs> so getting it down to 20 was probably not possible, but uh, but having gotten 27, I realized that that wasn't as much of a challenge. And so the next week I wrote a significantly longer story. And my goal was to write a story where a spelling word appeared on each page in a context completely... <laughs> foreign? Well, in a context that made sense in the story, but completely unexpected. Right. Uh, one, it, it was a silly example, that, although I thought it was the... Uh, I thought it was fairly clever in sixth grade. Uh, one of the spelling words, I think, was donkey. And so I used it as the proper name for a utility vehicle. Okay. Now, some might say that's, a, that's all about making things far more complicated than they need to be. But that's how I was playing with the silence. So it's the, the silence here you're looking for is the, the safe place to play, to dream, to create, which because someone might tweet, because someone needs to be in your Facebook, we get away from. It's, it's so easy to pay attention or to pay partial attention because we're also waiting for other things to happen. Sure. So. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So uh, do you have any new books currently in production besides the stuff we'd find on Dunlith Hill that uh, you'd like to mention? I'm working on a, on a series, an, an epic steampunk romance that... will probably also come out with Dunlith Hill. Okay. And because of that, Dunlith Hill is uh, an electronic publisher. The and the interesting angle there is the idea of publishing smaller pieces, which e-books allow us to publish a piece at an appropriate length. Sure. Paper books require a certain number of pages to be thick enough to carry a spine that's going to show up in the bookstore. I've heard several people lamenting the fact that many of the business books they have capture an idea that could have been explained well in about 30 pages, but it has to be beefed up to 300 to be big enough to get the book published. Gotcha. And so 
the, one of the basic ideas behind Dunluth Hill is to publish things at the length they need to be. Now, this raises an interesting prospect for fiction, which is kind of but not exactly like the old, and, and I'm talking old school Dickens, pattern of serial sure. publication. Uh, we might characterize it more as series as, uh, or trilogy as series of novellas. Okay. The other interesting thing about electronic publishing is that there's no reason to wait. Mainstream publishing is usually looking for one book a year because they've got to get books into bookstores, they've got production schedules, and more importantly, they've got a large catalog of other books right. they're producing. With electronic publishing, and this is not an argument one way or the other, it's simply that there are new possibilities. Okay. Uh, maybe a better way to characterize it is that Netflix recently released a series they produced called House of Cards. Sure, yeah as the entire season instead of one episode a week. Netflix could do that because they don't need to keep the audience coming back for the advertisers. Right. It's a different medium. With electronic publishing, uh, um, the Dunlith Hill writing guides were, there's a series of six of them that were released at the same time. They could have been uh, two 60,000 word books two sets of topics. One, the first three books talk about the writing life. The second three, more about the art and craft and theory of writing. So they naturally go together. Sure. But by breaking them up, you can get the one that addresses the topic you're most concerned with. And then, of course, my hope is that you like that one well enough to pick up a few more. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm intrigued in by the notion of applying that idea to fiction. And of course there are plenty of other people doing series and so it's not, I'm certainly not saying that this is the uh, single best new answer out there, but, but it is the project I'm working on. That does sound interesting. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely have to keep a watch on, watch on it and I, I will be covering some of your books on, uh, on future podcasts here. So, um, so the last question I have is, uh, Oh, I was going to ask, do you have any books that you're currently reading or have recently finished that you would recommend to our listeners? This one's going to sound strange. One that I recommend everybody actually read and not just share about, shout about is uh, Darwin's Origin of Species. Okay. Can't say I've read that one. <laughs> For a book that is at least 150 years old, it holds up remarkably well. Moreover, it comes from a time when a scientist was also expected to be well-spoken and well-written. The, the writing is, is excellent and, and uh, compelling. But I think most important, it is one of those things that everyone's heard of and may have an opinion about, but they've never read. I recommend, and part, part of the theme of navigating the great between is, is actually going to the source. It's getting past received wisdom or expectations sure, yeah. or conceits and finding what, finding what it's really about. And it turns out that Origin of Species, sure, it begs the question of 
human origins and was it one or right. many or whatever, but the actual book itself is a carefully laid out argument for variation. And the process in which Darwin works out the argument what he looks at is both fascinating and instructive. Partly, uh, it, is, it is good in its own right, but it's also good as a pattern for writers because when you're creating a story, you're actually creating an argument. Okay. Laying out an argument in a literate fashion, whether it's for a scientific principle or a world where pigs fly, <laughs> requires the same kind of things. Now, a little more contemporary and, a, and I hope more directly useful, we've, we've uh, come through, it's hard to say whether we've uh, endured a wave of dystopians or whether we're in the middle of a <laughs> flood of dystopian novels. One of the problems with something becoming trendy is that it tends, people tend to pick up ideas and use them uncritically. If you really want to understand dystopia and lay the foundation for writing your own, there's no better source than actual human dystopias. There's a fellow named Jared Diamond who wrote a book called Collapse in which he looks at eight societies. Okay. Easter Island, the Vikings in Greenland, a number of others that collapsed human communities that were vibrant. Like, heavens, Greenland had its own bishop <laughs> in the, the mid... Uh, inhabited from... Uh, Green, well, Greenland has been inhabited longer than the United States has existed, and then it collapsed. Gotcha. It's a fascinating study, both for the history and understanding how the world works, and also as a writer. Any one of those would be... an writing about the end of those civilizations, say on Easter Island where the resources are gone and they've turned into uh, warring cannibalistic tribes. Oh boy, you, it's just ripe. <laughs> for, a lot of, a the Greenland saga. So, Collapse by Jared Diamond. Okay, thank you. Uh, okay, so uh, as our last question here, what one thing would you most like people to get from your books? And do you have a central theme that you find you come back to over and over again or are you kind of, do you have... Uh, broader topics that you like to dive into as you're pr approaching different things. I, I do have a, a central theme. I have another series that, for a variety of reasons, including uh, a need for development on my part, has uh, been set aside. Okay. But in it, I worked out a universe in which there was a physical or naturalistic basis for the conflict between hope and despair. Interesting. All the way out to uh, macrostellar structure where stars, because they give light, are the epitome of hope, and black holes consuming everything are the epitome of despair. I think much of what we agonize over in life can come down to understanding that basic dichotomy. And many of us actually operate more in terms of despair than hope, even though there are things we hope for, certainly in terms of our political system. To give a, a, a simple example, we've gotten into a mode where there are two parties that treat 
the the game of government as a zero-sum game. We have to win. We have to stop the other side. We have to win because if we lose, uh, it's going to be terrible. A hopeful perspective actually winds up being the missing middle, the missing moderation that says, you know, we have differences, but we're going to find ways to work together. And it may mean that there are going to be some things that I don't completely agree with. But hope is, hope is about, or a perspective of hope is about something broader than just me and my biases. It comes back to the mission of speaking to people to na navigating the great between. Because one of the problems with being a teenager is despairing that you'll never be anything <laughs> but a teenager. And there have been a lot of, a, a number of recent, uh, like the It Gets Better campaign, that helping people to understand that what you think you're stuck with right now is small compared to the bigger picture. And not that you need to, not that you're supposed to take from that, that, okay, just sit down and shut up and be good and things. Right. It's a more subtle point of where you're looking. Are you looking inward? seeing everything like the black hole spiraling into this singularity, or are you fundamentally looking outward and seeing that you're part of a larger universe? And the fascinating thing about that is some people understand humility as, oh, I'm so little and everything is so big. The proper understanding of humility is, I have a place. Yeah, I know my place. I'm not the totality of the universe. But I'm also not insignificant in the universe. I'm part of it. Okay. Thank you, Darren. We appreciate your time. Okay. We are here with uh, Larry Correa, the New York Times bestselling author of Monster Hunters International, Grim Noir Chronicles, and the military thriller Dead Six. He's also a Campbell Award finalist. He won the Verlanger Award for Best Fantasy in France. Is that... Finalist. Finalist. Okay. And uh, Best Fa Fantasy Audi. Yes. Larry, thank you for your time today. Um, we just had a, a few questions that our, our listeners were hoping that we could ask of some people that, that, at least the people that I respect and that I enjoy reading and, and talking to. And uh, the first one we had is, could you tell us a little bit about your creative process? Is there a, a particular place or time that you like to go to, re to write? Um, I, uh, one, of the, one of the things, we, we built a house a couple years ago, and very specifically, as part of that deal, I got an office. <laughs> I have my own office. It's a, actually a pretty big room at... Um, I've got shelves for all my uh, minis and game-related stuff, and okay. uh, I got posters and pictures. And actually, there is a, a guest bed in there too, where I can crash out and take a nap. There's a couch I can lay down on. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, that's my uh, just a desk and a computer. So okay. Do you uh, do you like to listen to music or? I do actually. Yeah, I I, I write. Uh, I usually every book will wind up with a musical soundtrack. Okay. And so I do have a soundtrack set aside for different types of books and different types of what basically whatever I'm working on I've got. Okay. I, I'm ready to go. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit about the intended audience for your books? Um, originally, I thought I was writing. My original self-published book was written for an audience of gun nuts, and I thought I was writing for an audience of you know males, uh, you know, twenties, thirties, forties. 
However, it's blown up really huge. Um, uh, these are, these are all the national bestsellers now, and my audience is much broader than I expected. Okay. Um, of all sorts of different kinds of people, I, it's it's very surprising. And uh, now I'm in uh, six different languages, so it's actually doing well in the rest of the world too. So it's been kind of surprising. Well, I have to say, as a, as a self-described gun nut, your stuff is right at my alley. Oh, thanks. So I, I really enjoy it. Uh, okay, so. If you could change one thing about any of your published novels, is there something that you have in mind that you would like to adjust? Or? Uh, not any particulars, but I tell you, the, the, every book you write, you get practice, and uh, the more you write, the better you get. So you know, my first book came out back in uh, 2009. That was when it was really published, and then the self-published version was in 2008. And I was not as good a writer back then, so if I could go back in time and just do another editing pass, okay. believe me, that would be awesome. <laughs> But uh, you really can't do that unless you're Orson Scott Card. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, every book you get a little better. So you always look back on old ones and think, oh, you know, I wish I could have did this a I little bit. I wish I changed that passage. Or... But you know what? There's, there's a point where you just have to get the book out the door. Sure. And, and you make it as good as you can at the time that you write it. Okay. Uh, so do you have any books currently in production that you'd like to mention? I do, yeah. Um, I've got a bunch of stuff coming out soon. I have uh, two books out this year. And um, Swords of Exodus is the sequel to Dead Six. That'll be out in September. And in August is uh, Warbound, which is the end of the uh, Grim Noir Chronicles trilogy. Okay. And uh, just barely got that one done. It's in the bag. Um, and then I've got a novella for Privateer Press, uh, War Machine. That'll be out later this year. And uh, then I've got an epic fantasy series that I'm working on uh, that I've sold. And I have a... Um, collaboration that I'm working on, and then I've got four short story anthologies out this year, and then another Monster Hunter novel next year. I remember you mentioning in a panel yesterday that you just don't know how to say no when they ask you. No, I'm a sucker. I'm a kind of a workaholic. <laughs> I always have been, so... Uh, it's a good uh, workahol, right? It is, yeah. I just, <laughs> I keep signing up for things, and I've gotten to the point in my career now where I have to actually start saying no to projects, which is really weird and kind of hard for me, but I keep, uh, if it sounds fun I and I think it'll reach more fans, I, I keep signing up. Okay. Do you have any uh, books that you're currently reading or have recently finished you'd like to mention? Well, sadly, when you're, uh, sadly, when you're writing uh, it so much, it really kills your reading time. Um, so most of my reading this year has been you know, game books. Uh, I did, however, recently read uh, one that I, I don't know if I could talk about too much because uh, most of my reading lately has been uh, alpha reading for other novelists that I'm okay. friends with. And uh, I recently read a novella by Dan, uh, Dan Wells that will be coming out, and um, it's about 30,000 words, and it's honestly one of the best pieces of writing I've ever read in my life. It just nice. I, I don't think I can tell you what it is, though, is okay, the problem. Sure. <laughs> but it, it was absolutely phenomenal, and Dan, Dan is a brilliant writer. We'll have to catch Dan and see if he'll tell me what it's called. Yeah, I don't know if he, I don't know if he can say it, because I've not seen an official announcement of it gotcha. anywhere, so I don't know if I can tell you on this, but it's it's it's... It, when you see a 30,000-word novella come out from Dan Wells this year, we'll know buy it, because it's awesome. <laughs> Okay. What uh, what one thing would you most hope that your readers get from your body of work? And is there a particular theme that you find you revisit a lot, or are you more broadly scoped and touch no, a lot of things? I, I consider myself more an entertainer. I'm not one of those sensitive artist types with, you know, like message fiction or anything. If if there was to be a message in any of my works, it's tend I tend to focus on uh, heroes rather than victims. Okay. I, I, I tend to write about people who do what they have to do and get the job done no matter what. And I like, I like write. I personally, I prefer being around those people. So I prefer writing about that kind of people. I don't, I don't write for the victim mentality, I guess is probably the best way to say it. Okay. 
I, I think that's a, a wonderful message actually to send people and uh, we appreciate your time Larry thank you very much great thanks thanks for having me on okay uh, we are here with uh, do you prefer Bob or Robert I've always called you Bob uh, Bob's what I go by when we're talking but okay. Robert is the, the, the dramatic the pen name, pen name yeah. <laughs> so we're here with uh, Bob Defendi uh, good friend of my little brother Aaron the, the intern actually of Trek West 5 our podcast and uh, we're here at LTUE, and, and Bob, I'm just going to let you do your own intro here since... <coughs> yeah, I'm Bob Defendi. I, um, I've done uh, many, many uh, role-playing games. I worked on um, Savage Seas uh, for Exalted. I worked on Stargate SG-1. I worked on Spygraft. I worked on... I, I, I'm the main driving force behind the last version of Space Master. worked on Rollmaster. I worked on Harp. Most currently, I have a game company called Final Redoubt Press, and we put out a, um, a setting called The Echoes of Heaven, which is our flagship product. But we also have a um, fourth edition D&D um, critical book called Critical Matters. Yep. And uh, I think, like I said, I, I believe about half of my listeners have picked that up. We That is because your hit listeners are <laughs> genius, caring, intelligent people who want to give me money. That's right. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to start off just asking you a little bit about your own creative process. Is there a particular place or time that you find works the best for you to write? Do um, you like to listen to music? Do you have other things that you do to help you focus? I can't do it right now with my current job, but um, after everybody in the world has gone to bed is the best time for me to write. Um, you know, if you want to get all spiritual, new agey, maybe I'm tapping into the collective unconsciousness. But I think it's really just more specifically that I am biologically nocturnal. Um, when... If you, when the sun comes up, I get sleepy. When the sun goes down, I get awake. And um, I can force myself to be on a day schedule, but it, um, it's never, never quite, quite as comfortable as being like on a graveyard schedule. So, um, so that's when, just, I think it's just when my brain functions the best is, is when okay. it's dark out. I, I do listen to music. I usually just put my iTunes on shuffle. If I'm having what people would call writer's block, I just put on classical music and that just burns right through it. Awesome. Is there a particular composer you prefer? Uh, yeah. I'm not a big classical aficionado, okay. um, but uh, you know, Beethoven's always been a love of mine. Um, this isn't technically classical, um, but uh, uh, Carmina Burana, uh, Carmina oh, sure. Burana by Karloff, um, uh, that's... Uh, it's my ring. Uh, oh, Fortuna is the ringtone on my phone. Oh, nice. Because I want every time I get a phone call to be a momentous event. <laughs> okay, so tell us a little bit about your intended audience for your materials. Um, people who love story. Um, the Echoes of Heaven is built around uh, moving character stories. And you have to do that a little differently in an RPG than you can in a, um, like a novel. Um, but the... Uh, I, I build them all around the three-act structure. One of my main goals with the Echoes of Heaven is to give um, new GMs a, the tools they need, because the old GMs don't need my advice. Sure. The old GMs, they probably don't even need my products. I mean, they, they might want them because they've got children and wives and they don't want to spend hundreds of hours <laughs> prepping, but they don't need them. The people who need my advice are the guys that are just starting out. They don't know how... Um, they don't know how what the dramatic purpose of the different things are. For instance, when you when you have a have a seat, Dan, we're recording, but uh, recording yeah. <laughs> when um, when you're structuring a story, you want your big epic fights, and a common rookie mistake is to try to make all the fights big and epic. 
that is not what interests people in a story. That's what um, makes them um, desperate to, to know how it ends, but they have to be interested, interested in the story before that works. So you start off with light romps. Um, you start off with easy fights that make the people feel powerful. If you're reading a novel and the main character just kicks a bunch of butt, like at the beginning of, um, say, The Phantom Menace, uh, where you have the Jedis, and you, first time you ever see the Jedis just blasting droids with, with stuff. Yeah, yeah. That is a romp. That is where you attach your wish fulfillment to that character, okay. and you say, I could be that guy. <laughs> and then once the viewer or the reader or the player in a game says, I could be that guy, I am secretly, nobody knows this, but I am secretly that awesome. Once they realize that, then when you put that character at risk, they're like, oh my God, I'm at risk. Instead of, oh look, there's something interesting happening in this book. Gotcha. So, um, I, in the Echoes of Heaven products, I have, every scene has a dramatic purpose. And I, and I describe the dramatic purpose. Hey, this is just to get the player's information on what's going forward. This is to establish that this character is in love with this character. This is, to this is supposed to be an easy fight to help with the wish fulfillment. This is supposed to be a moderately challenging fight to eat up some character resources. This is supposed to be the big fight of the game, you know. Sure. And so uh, it's all, and, and I do that so that, because I don't like railroading people in games. Um, my adventures might look like they're set up that way because they're very um, clearly demarked and, and plotted. And I, and I try to explain to people that the whole purpose of the dramatic of the dramatic purposes is so that if you're a new GM and your players go off in some completely different direction, you can start improvising and just put in your own things that go with what they're doing based on those dramatic purposes. Oh, it's time for a romp. I need to get an easy fight in here. Okay. Uh, I need to start getting some challenging fights in here. They're 50 miles away from the adventure and going in the opposite direction. But it's time for some kind of a twist on what they're doing. You know, it's time for the act to So as twist. long as they're hitting that purpose. As long as they're hitting the, the If they hit all of the purposes, even if they don't do any of the adventure, if they hit all the purposes in order, they'll get a story arc. Okay. So. That, that sounds great. Uh, if you could change any one thing of your published material, is there anything in, that you have in mind that you wish you could just go back and change or fix? You know, I overheard Larry Korea's uh, answer to this, and it was very compelling. I would love to go back and give an, another editing pass to some of that stuff from back in the day. Um, if there's anything I could change, when I did Space Master, I, um, I had a logistical dilemma. I wanted to put alien races into a game, and I wanted people to be able to play them, but I wanted it to be able to be played as a hard sci-fi game. And I am of the philosophical opinion that scientifically it's impossible to put an alien race that can be playable by a human being into, you know, at least approachably, into a sci-fi game um, and make them scientifically realistic. They would be so different from humans that they'd be unrelatable. Okay. Um, and so what I did is I invented this precursor race. I made even human beings artificially created. Um, I made all of these races that were... You know, based on animals we know, um, they're anthropomorphized animals. And um, from a structure standpoint, from a logic theory standpoint, it works beautifully. Um, but the fuzzy, furry thing happened. Not the, not the fuzzy, the furry. <laughs> the furries. Uh, the furries started to become big right then. And, uh, and, and, and that game did not get the love it should have gotten because of the anthropomorphized animals. Okay. 
Uh, do you have any books that are currently in production that you'd like to talk about or mention? Um, well, next out from Echoes will be um, our uh, sixth product, which is play-tested, but um, all of our products in the Echoes have an adventure in a source book. And so the adventures are play-tested. Um, I think they're all converted into all of our systems because we do multiple systems. Okay. Uh, some of your readers might know. We have a D&D version, a harp version, a Rollmaster version. We dropped Hero because the... Hero came out with a sixth edition, and we're not making enough money off of it to go to back the and, and redo the back catalog. Yeah, um, but so it's all converted, but the source book isn't written yet. Okay. So that's my next big project for the company. I also have um, some stuff I, I have to do for agents and editors and stuff that um, is unrelated. Um, actually, the, probably the next thing you'll see, I'm guessing, is going to be Space Eldridge 2. Space Eldridge was an uh, anthology that some of us here uh, put together, which is H.P. Um, Lovecraft in Space. Yep. And, um, and Space Eldridge came out recently. We've been having a lot of hype, and we're just starting to talk about Space Eldridge 2. And since that's a series of short stories, it doesn't require art lists, and um, I mean, there's just the cover. And uh, one of our people does the cover, so there's uh, that will come off much quicker, I think. Than, uh, the production cycle is a little shorter. Yeah, that, yeah, I, I suspect that will happen first. So, do you have any books that you're currently reading or recently finished that you'd like to recommend? I think for your readers, the best book maybe ever written is my book, Death by Cliche. The second best book. <laughs> And by the way, you can get Death by Cliché on playtesting.net. It is a comedy about a game designer who gets shot in the head by a loony fan and ends up in the worst game of all time. Obviously, it's a true story. <laughs> but um, the uh, second best book of all time for your readers is probably Ready Player One. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a book that takes place in the future. Um, the premise is that um, this, this super, super rich man um, who was in love with the 80s, because that's when he grew up, um, has this billions of dollar fortune and he dies and he's built the greatest virtual reality everybody uses it in every part of their life it's, it, it's the cornerstone of the world it's like Facebook become um, you know virtual reality yeah. and uh, everybody uses it and um, he's, he says there are a series of um, there are a series of clues uh, of clues of Easter eggs in my world because I love Easter eggs and the person who gets through all of them and follows all the clues to the end is my heir, because I didn't have an heir. And for like five or ten years, I don't remember how long, nobody finds anything. And then the main character uh, figures, one out, figures the first one out, and there's a, um, a board, a leaderboard, that's just been zero, 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 zero um, since, since the guy died. And all of a sudden, the main character's handle shows up in, in, in the first place with a score, and that's when the killing starts. <laughs> Okay. Uh, so, what one thing would you most hope people get out of your work? Uh, and is there a common theme that you're trying to get to the heart of as you produce all these different materials? Or are you just kind of doing it for the fun of it, for the love, for the passion of writing? In my fiction, guilt is the theme, I have been told, um, <laughs> by my readers who say, Wow, you were raised Catholic, weren't you? I can tell. <laughs> Because every one of your characters goes through a spiral of guilt until they hit rock bottom, and then they pull themselves back up. Um, in uh, my role-playing games, um, probably my biggest theme is religion and spirituality, and maybe implied the difference between religion and spirituality. Okay. Um, 
because I've known a lot of very religious people who weren't very spiritual. I've known a lot of very spiritual people who weren't very religious. And um, uh, I don't mean that as a... I don't want you to take that as a as a cry against religion. It's... You know, like Just everything that there else. Is a I distinction. Yeah, I know a lot of great people who are gun owners. I've known some people that I wouldn't want to own guns. I mean, um, <laughs> I'm a big gun advocate myself, personally. I own a couple. But... Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, people are, there are jerks out there. Um, so anyway, the, the, the religion and, and spirituality is a big theme in all of my stuff. Okay. Bob, thank you for your time. Thank you. We appreciate it. Okay, we're here at LTUE with Dan Willis, who wrote his first work of fiction at the tender age of 10 and has been creating fantastic tales ever since. He's used his talents working in the board game and video game industries, as well as advertising and web design. He wrote for the long-running Dragonlance series and under their young adult brand, Dragonlance The New Adventures. Dan lives in Utah with his wife and four children. Dan, thank you for joining us today. Anytime. Thank you. So uh, the the first question I kind of want to ask people is just to say, can you tell us a little bit about your own creative process? Is there a particular time and place that you find works best for you to write? Is there music that you like to listen to or other things that you do that you find help you focus? Well, uh, I've I have to I've got kids, and so I have to write when they're either asleep or not in the room. Because uh, being interrupted, and they've sure. done some studies on this. Anybody, no matter what you do, if you're interrupted, it takes you like 20 minutes to get back on task. And writing is a time intensive for me anyway process. A lot of people just sit down and write. I envy them. I'm not one of them. Um, and so I have a huge, uh, probably three or four gigabyte file of movie soundtrack music, and uh, you know all instrumental stuff, no vocals. So that it, uh, I can just play it in the background, and there's some video game soundtracks in there, I think, okay. too. But it's just stuff that it's, you know, good music. It's stuff that I, I enjoy, but it requires no mental cycles sure. to to deal with. And yet, it masks the dog barking outside and that whole car horn and all the rest of that stuff that would might, you know, oh, what's that? Distract you. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, that's just usually my process um, for create for creation. That's the weirdest thing. I, I write stories from what I call vignettes. Uh, if you're familiar with the term vignette, it's just a little cl- a little piece of a larger story. Uh, it's also a picture with a curved frame around it. But uh, the, the term is a piece of a larger story. And um, I'll get an idea for a character. I'll see something that, go, that I find interesting in, a, in a, somebody's art or in real life. And, and then I'll just be off the races. Oh, what if this character was in this situation? How would that work? Well, how, you know, what kind of world is this? And then you begin to build out from there okay. uh, because I've got something interesting that I, I, I want to explore. And sometimes that doesn't go anywhere, but sometimes that goes places that are terrific. And, you know, oh, I have to write that. So Awesome. So uh, who is the att- intended audience for the book of your work? I like my work to be generally or broadly appealing to anybody. I've written a lot of YA. I've always tried to write, write YA stories as if I was writing for adults, just without sex and, and graphic violence. Um, which is, I wrote for Wizards of the Coast, and that was pretty much their standard. If you're sure. writing yeah. for them anyway, you, it had to be you know no sex and uh, and uh, no graphic violence. violence. Oh, you have violence, just not you know not blood splattering and brain matter and you know skull fragments embedding in people and things like that they didn't want any of that and uh, while some of that can be fun to write splatter fiction can be fun to write it doesn't have a lot of mass mark because most people if, if you have a really good imagination you're into the world you're seeing all this it's like I can't go to horror movies because even if the effects are bad my brain will edit that well, I can clean that up and make that horrific, you know. And I go home and I have nightmares for a week. You know? I just don't need that. So, but uh, um, but yeah, the uh, 
the difference there between YIDA and regular fiction is just the age of the protagonist. Okay. Uh, you know, obviously, if your protagonist is, a, is an early teenager, 14, 15, middle, I guess middle teenager, or early teenager, 11, 12, 13, uh, then you have YA. And if you know, he's in, you know, 18 on, then that can be considered regular you know, everybody. I don't want to say adult fiction because that has the wrong connotation. <laughs> but yeah, it's just regular fiction. Okay. Uh, but I like to tell stories that anybody could just sit down and enjoy. Great. So if if you could change any one thing about something that you've published before, is there something that you have in mind that you'd like to go back and, and readdress? Yeah. Um, I remember sitting down on a panel with Brandon Sanderson before he picked up the Robert Jordan endorsement. Okay. Um, and but he had still he sold Mistborn. Uh, he was a big up-and-coming author, and rightly so. Brandon is a great guy. Yes. I mean, I don't, wanna, I don't want you to think I'm, I'm dissing on him in any way. And he said, well, you know, it was on how to start a story or, or how stories, you know, how to get a story going. And he, he, he read from the beginning of Mistborn, which is a terrific beginning. His, his opening line in Mistborn is awesome. And he asked all the panelists, can you, you know, yeah, you've got your books, just read your first thing. And mine was a, a right square down the middle classic cliche. Okay. Which I did not really realize at the time. I was, I, I actually got published probably before I should have, and uh, uh, I didn't realize. I mean, my first book, and, and Bob Defendi, who's sitting at the table here with us, uh, is uh, he pointed this out to me when he read my first ever book. He said, "You you you watch a lot of cinema, right?" And I said, "Oh yeah, I I, I actually watch more movies than I read books." Because they're just easier to consume. Sure. Uh, and uh, he says, yeah, what you have here is an establishing shot. Because it started with a wide shot of a castle, and it zoomed in. Literally, I mean, the text pulled you in. It was, it was beautifully written. But, but it, was, it just zoomed in on this guy standing on a balcony, and then he walks into the, into the keep, and the story starts. And it's, it's totally it's an establishing shot. My second book, and this is the book that Brandon had me read, starts with a guy having a nightmare. Okay. And that is... Straight up the cliche, sure. you know, and so I, I am living proof that you can write with cliches and still actually get published. <laughs> but uh, because these were experienced editors who let this slip by, I mean, it's, it's not just my fault. But I was such, I just ready to crawl into the table when I realized, you know, later, yeah, yeah, your book starts with right up the cliche bandwagon. So I would probably fix that if I could. Okay. <laughs> uh, do you have any books that you are currently reading or have recently finished that you'd like to mention? <sighs> Well, I've actually been going back into my library. I haven't read anything new in like a year. Uh, and there's some great new stuff out. But uh, the thing I just finished was I was rereading uh, Harry Harrison, okay. Stainless Steel Rat. Sure. I love those books, despite the fact that they all depend on a ridiculous coincidence uh, at one point in the story where the main character has absolutely no hope of winning and then finally meets somebody who belongs to the enemy force who is sympathetic to his cause and has sought him out because he is, you know, these news yeah. articles are about this guy that everyone's trying to catch. And somehow this guy finds, you know, total coincidence. And I have to just go, you know what, I'm skipping right over that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to dwell on that because other than that, this is 100% of awesome sauce. So, but, but, uh, but yeah, Harry Harrison, Stainless Steel Rat, unfortunately he passed away a few years ago, so we're not going to get any more oh, of those. I heard that. Yeah, I think it was two years ago he passed away. Um, but uh, a very enjoyable, very enjoyable run. And uh, obviously, with the Hobbit movie out, I went and reread the Hobbit. Okay. Realized that uh, boy, I haven't read the Hobbit in years. It's a lot more YA than I remember. <laughs> like hmm, the fight with the uh, with the trolls is apt- actively silly. I I don't remember yes. that when yeah. I read it. I read it like eleven or twelve when I read it. But uh, 
But I'm glad that Peter Jackson uh, cleaned that up in the in the books and made it a lot more believable and uh, and awesome. Dwarves, get, the dwarves in the book are just buffoons. They are. <laughs> and you're like, really who, are. how are these people have any hope of killing a dragon? And oh, yeah, I was ten, eleven at the time. I don't remember. I was I was younger than that. I had to be nine or ten. Uh, and I, I yeah, when you're nine or ten, you don't ask those questions. Yeah, you you're, not, you're not really reading critically yet. <laughs> yeah. What I remember was when I was nine or ten, I read Lord of the Rings and I got to the Council at Rivendell. That's like eighty pages. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like. And, and, and Gimli, who I remember fondly from, uh, uh, or Glowen, sorry, who I remember fondly from The Hobbit, stands up with his son. I thought, oh, this is going to be awesome. Because I remember Glowen, you know, he was from The Hobbit. He was, That's awesome. And he gives a, like a four or five page introduction of his son, which is the history of the dwarves from the moment they entered Middle Earth until he stood up. And then he says, and that all that, by the way, of introduction to my son Gimli. And Gimli stands up and says, I am Gimli, son of Glowen. And he then repeats everything his father just said, right up to the moment his father sat down. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, you've got to be kidding me. I'm a kid. I'm reading this. I'm like, this is the most boring piece of tripe I've ever... I just started skipping pages until, oh, they're walking again. Okay, finally, we get some action. And I ended up reading the whole series and liking it. But, I mean, to this day, I have not reread it since. Oh, to really? this day, people are like, oh, this is Lord of the Rings awesome. I'm like, not really. <laughs> but, I mean, i got to respect because... Without Lord of the Rings, we don't have a lot of what's come after. Yeah, yeah. It really did set the tempo. It made fantasy a genre. Yes. Uh, and Tolkien, it was, it was brilliant work. But you almost have to be scholarly to get into it. My brain's way... I have way too much ADD to be scholarly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, what one thing would you most hope that people get out of your works? And is there a, a common theme that you come back to a lot? Or are you just kind of, you know... Diverse, and you're trying to approach different topics. I, I, I try to spread it around a little bit, but I write adventure fiction, I and mean, unapologetically so. I don't try to be deep and meaningful. I have been deep and meaningful, but it's usually because the story goes that way. Okay. Um, I try to write a good story about a guy or a gal or a guy and a gal or a group of people doing something that's interesting and fun and heroic. Uh, I don't do anti-heroes and dark stuff. I mean, I like my bad guys to be dark. I mean, dark bad guys are a good thing. Sure. But, uh, and I like them to be interesting. If you have a boring bad guy, uh, it's just awful. I hate the, the, the TV trope where, you know, we know it's a TV show. We've got 40 minutes. The bad guy has to be a bad guy. So the first scene, we're going to introduce him. He's going to kill a puppy just to prove he's bad. <laughs> and then we're going to move. It's a, it become, they become cartoons and... and, and, and yeah, you know, they're just cardboard stand-ups yeah, at that twist, time. Twisting their mustaches. And exactly. exactly. As I twist my, I'm trying to grow my mustache out, which is why I keep doing this. But because uh, it's just long enough to be annoying. But uh, um, you know, I, I wrote a villain once where the villain was actually trying to save the world, and he's going to do that by taking it over and and building it up because he knows an alien invasion is coming. Okay. And no one will believe him because this is the 1830s or 40s, and no, 1860s. Anyway, point is, it's 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 early enough that. And so his, his, he's trying to take over the world to seize all uh, technology so that he can then put his knowledge to work to build society into something that can withstand what's coming. Gotcha. So in one sense, he's a good guy. But in all practical sense, because he's willing to kill anybody who gets in his way. Yeah, the method. <laughs> yeah, yeah his, his method needs work. But uh, uh, I like bad guys like that. They're complicated and they're interesting. Um, so I guess the theme is, is, is long as, as long as a reader... Has a good romp. Bob, Bob was talking about romps in his uh, in his conversation with you. And that where Star Wars is the perfect example. I mean, it is a romp from start to finish, and yet it has a lot of gravity of what's the undertones and what's going on and what's at stake and all that. And it's just a great story, well told. If I can manage that, I've done my job. Okay. Well, thank you for your time, Dan. We appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it.
Okay, we are here at LTUE with James A. Owen, who has been working professionally as an illustrator and storyteller for more than two decades, which is notable mostly because he's still comfortably in his 30s. In addition to numerous illustration and design projects, James has written and illustrated two dozen Star Child comics and books. Here There Be Dragons, the first in the Chronicles of the Imaginarium Geographica, was published by Simon & Schuster in 2006, followed by The Search for the Red Dragon, The Indigo King, The Shadow Dragons, The Dragon's Apprentice, and one more book forthcoming, as well as a few related surprises. James is the founder and executive director of Coppervale International, an art and design studio that also published the periodicals International Studio and Argosy develops television and film projects, and is redesigning an entire town, among other ventures. James lives in Arizona with his family. You can find him online at jamesaowen.com. James, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, Joey. Uh, so what, what we're just trying to do here is I have a, a little podcast that I do. I, I say little. i got about 50 listeners. That's little compared to Howard Taylor, but I think I'm doing all right. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> and uh, I just wanted to take some time while I'm here. I normally record on Fridays, and I was here... At LTUE instead, so I wanted okay. to do some interviews of the people that I've admired and the, that I've enjoyed listening to. Okay. And uh, you come very highly on that list. So. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you is a little bit about your own creative process, whether there's a particular place and time that you find works better for you as you're trying to create. Is there music that you listen to? What What are the things that you use to help you focus? Um, I, I work in a restored century-old church as my studio. I, I think having a great environment helps and so the private office that I work in mostly was the old library on the second floor so big curved ceiling but the walls are covered with the art that I admired when I was learning to do this Um, so when I was a teenager and planning this is my career the art and the comic books and the books that inspired me are the ones that are still around me I I think that sort of thing is really important Um, I work in a room full of the things I love uh, when I'm writing, uh, because I illustrate my books, um, and I learned that doing comic books, um, the process has always been the same. I come up with the ideas for the drawings while I'm outlining the book. Okay. So there's an outline process. It's only about one page. But then I do thumbnail sketches of all the illustrations. And uh, they kind of go hand in hand. And that process can happen anytime. It happens okay. all the time. Um, finished work... I like to do when there's nobody else around. Uh, so usually after I've gotten my family to bed, I'll go back to the studio. Some of my best art and best writing happens from 10 at night until about 2 in the morning. <laughs> and then, you know, by then I can I can head home. I live about three blocks from my studio. Okay. So I can go home and sleep um, until about 8. And the kids are up and getting ready for school, and they head off. And, and uh, then I head back to the studio. All right. And as as far as music, um, it depends on the day. Um, That's an interesting question uh, to have asked. (laughs) Uh, Because sometimes you want a little bit of background noise. Sure. Sometimes um, you don't want to pay too much attention to it. But once in a while, one song, one song will just get you. Um, There's a a singer named uh, Nina Gordon. Okay. Um, She was in a band called Veruca Salt. Sure. Well, Nina did this great song that I really liked uh, called Tonight and For the Rest of My Life. And I loved it. And I wrote uh, my fourth Imaginarium Geographica book, The Shadow Dragons, listening to nothing but that song on repeat <laughs> the entire time. Because wow. the end of the song segues into the repeat of the beginning. 
pretty seamlessly. Okay. So it, it's kind of like puts you in a Zen trance while you're working. And I just left it on repeat for days. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I have to say, I've done that a few times. I don't think for days, but I, I've, <laughs> I've had days where, uh, like, downtown by, uh, was it Patsy Klein? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I'll put that one on sometimes and it's just on a loop because it just, like you say, it does, the end fades kind of yes. back into the beginning. If, if it works where there's not a break, yeah. then all of a sudden you can leave that as background noise. It's like rain you yeah. know, or thunder. Yeah. Or a coffee shop, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so can you tell us a little bit about the intended audience for your work? Um, every human being on Earth. <laughs> Uh, when I've reached my intended audience, I'm going to buy an asteroid and turn it into a space <laughs> fortress. <laughs> um, until then, my audience is a little smaller. Um, the books are marketed as young adult. Um, I write them to be as accessible as possible. I think about it like a Pixar movie. Yes, okay? yeah. Mostly people think about animated films as for kids, but a Pixar movie is written so the entire family can enjoy yeah. it. The little kids love it. The adults love it because the writing is intelligent and sophisticated. That's my idea of what kind of audience I should have. I want to write something that the younger readers can enjoy, but the older readers can enjoy as well. And I'm, I'm actually reading uh, Here There Be Dragons with my own children, and my daughter has commented that she likes how your book doesn't treat her like she's stupid just because she's a kid. <laughs> there you go. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, if you could change any one thing about the, the material that you have out there published material that you have. Is there something that you have in mind that you'd like to go back and, and alter? You know, um, I, I can answer that in two ways. Uh, the Chronicles of the Imaginarium Geographica, I, I had laid out fairly well um, when I started. I wasn't that experienced as a novelist. I'd done a couple of novels, um, four actually, for a series called Myth World for a German publisher. Yeah. Um, but I, I wasn't prepared for the experience of writing something that was going to be both a long series and popular. Because when you were popular, we were on a schedule. We're going to do a sure. new book every year. And um, I wish I had planned some of it a little better. I think I could have made it a little tighter okay. in, in a lot of ways. But that's what I'm getting to do with the next project up that starts this October, which is Fool's Hollow. It's a series of five illustrated novels I'm doing for Shadow Mountain Publishing. Okay. And Fool's Hollow is a retelling and a completion of the stories I told in my Star Child comic books. Oh, okay. I never finished the stories as the comics. And a lot of people have asked, you know, are you going to go back? Um, we're, we're about to publish a one-volume 20th anniversary edition of Star Child, 650 pages. Nice. But there's no ending to the story. And people have said, will you go finish Star Child now? But it, I started it 20 years ago. So I'm a better writer, I'm a better illustrator, and the story was weaker. Um, I don't want to change what the comics were, because there were parts that were great. Yeah. But I can't finish it as comics. But I can retell the story, the basic heart of the story, and make it better as illustrated novels. Okay. So I get to fix um, nice. the story I love the most. That, that's awesome. Uh, so do you have any any books currently in production? I think you just mentioned the, the Fool's Hollow. Is that uh, Fool's Hollow? Um, that's uh, that's the one that I'm working on right now. And I think you mentioned also that the uh, the next book in the Imaginarium Geographic is... Uh, the last one, um, book seven, is called The First Dragon. And I'm finishing the art for that right now. And it's coming out in November. And it ties all the threads together. Great. Wow. We're looking forward to it. Really well, excited. You. Uh, do you have anything that you personally are currently reading or have recently finished that you'd like to recommend? 
Um, one of the books I'm currently reading is uh, the the history of Marvel Comics okay. by a guy named Sean Howe. Um, and it's it's one it's written from an outsider's point of view. It's not an insider book, um, but he interviewed all the insiders. Okay. So it's not like one of those dull corporate histories of something. <laughs> it's all the great stuff about how it all came together. And and one of the reasons I mentioned that um, Stanley, you know, he's a larger than life guy. Yes. Yeah. Um, what makes that significant and worth mentioning is is you know you've heard me talk. I like to to do inspirational and motivational talks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spider Man is arguably his greatest creation, sure, which yeah. he was he, he created with the help of two artists, um, Jack Kirby, Kirby. And, and Steve Ditko. Um, Spider-Man wasn't created until Stan was older than 40 years old. So the thing he was most known for, he, he was past 40 when he created Spider-Man. Gotcha. Um, a lot of people that think, oh, I'm too old to start something spectacular, too old to start a new career, they were ready to close Marvel Comics when Stan created Spider-Man. Huh, I didn't know that. So, you know, um, Grandma Moses was this famous painter. I don't think she started painting till she was after 70. And then she became world famous because of it. Um, so so the, the history of Marvel Comics. And then uh, in terms of fiction, um, I just started re- reading A Confusion of Princes by Garth Nix. Okay. Who uh, writes, again, he's one of those. Yes. He writes to a younger audience, but doesn't insult them. Yeah. Okay, um, so if you were to look at your body of work, is there one particular theme or message that you're trying to get through that, that you'd like to just lay out really clearly? Or are there several themes that you're trying to hit that you're, you've never really narrowed in on one? Uh, with the last Imaginarium Geographic book, actually, I figured it out on book six um, that I'd been laying the groundwork for this all along, and I realized it's a theme going through all of my fiction. Um, someone asked me a couple of years ago, could you sum up the major themes of your books in one word? And I said, absolutely. Redemption. Redemption is it. Um, I'm one of those guys, um, maybe one of the rare ones, who actually really loves the Star Wars prequels. <laughs> because I love that whole arc of, of Anakin Skywalker. I love that story and the fact that it is his story. He's the focus. And what happens in the end is Luke is good enough, he helps redeem his father. Yeah. In the end, after all the bad choices and all the evil, Darth Vader does the right thing finally because he can't kill his boy. Yeah. There's something redemptive in that. And I'm trying to do the same thing with the Imaginarium Geographica novels, that um, there's some bad people doing bad things there, but there's never a loss of hope. There's always a possibility that they can still choose to do something redemptive. And I think if that's the theme that's stuck in my head, and I'm trying to tell that over and over in these stories, that's not a bad thing, yeah. not at all. So uh, it wasn't really, you know, it was briefly mentioned in your bio here, but I do want to mention to my listeners that uh, drawing out the dragon is for me. I went home and and reread it with my wife the other mm-hmm. night after you signed that copy for me, and it does. It brings tears to my eyes and hope to my heart to know that that there's someone out there that's trying to carry that message forward of. Of that I believe in you, and and that we should believe in each other, and we should have more hope and faith in each other as people. So I, I just wanted to let you know how much your work has meant to me, and, Thank you. and I really appreciate you coming out. Oh, not a problem. Happy to do it. Thanks for your time. You bet. Thank you, Joey. Well, that brings us to the end of another podcast. We hope that you've 
been inspired to take a deeper look at your entertainment choices and discuss it with friends, family, or just a couple of complete strangers you only know from the internet. As always, we invite your comments to our email at trekwest5 at thehomestarmy.com. You can tweet Pete at trekwest5, or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 801-508-4242. 